I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, uh, to the book of Malachi. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back you can grab. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those as our gift to you. We'd be happy to provide that to you. Uh, you might recall that a couple of weeks ago we finished our series in the New Testament letter from Paul to the Philippians, and so this morning we are beginning a, uh, another sermon series that we will get through either in the summer or early in the fall. Uh, the Old Testament book of Malachi. Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, in, times, in time of crisis, everything, absolutely everything, is important and significant. Life itself is on the line. No word is casual, no action marginal. And almost always, God and our relationship with God is on the front page. In a time of crisis, he says, that we tend to give our attention to God and our relationship with God. Many churches in New York City uh, saw this powerfully illustrated on Sunday, September 16th, 2001, just days after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Many churches overflowed with distraught guests searching for comfort, searching for understanding, searching for a way forward. Tim Keller's church, Redeemer Presbyterian, at the heart of Manhattan, ballooned from 2,800 to 5,400 that Sunday. As people looked to God in that time of crisis. A crisis gets our attention. But here's my question for us this morning. What about those times when we are not in crisis? What about those huge blocks of time, those periods in our lives where things are normal, mundane, ordinary. What happens to our attentiveness to God and the things of God in those seasons? Uh, again, Peterson writes this, during the humdrum times when things are, as we tend to say, normal, our interest in God is crowded to the margins of our lives and we become preoccupied with ourselves. Religion during such times is trivialized into asking God questions, calling God into question, or complaining about God, treating the worship of God as a mere hobby or diversion, managing our personal affairs for our own convenience, and disregarding what God has to say about them, going about our usual activities as if God were not involved in such dailiness. Peterson says that when things are just normal, when we're just going day to day to day to day in the humdrum of life, it is easy to push God to the margins, to not pay attention to Him, to perhaps still go through some motions religiously, but to not really be attentive or focused on Him. We can describe that way of living as practical atheism. Uh, it, it's still some semblance of religious practice, we could say, but, but really living as if God doesn't exist, or, or living at least as if his existence doesn't impact our lives day to day. It is into that kind of setting that the prophet Malachi shows up. It is into that kind of setting that he speaks. He addresses God's people not in a time of national crisis, but rather in the midst of the humdrum ordinariness of life in their post-exilic existence. Their lives are okay, sort of. They're disappointed, 
Things have not turned out like they expected. They're, they're pretty disillusioned. In fact, they're nurturing doubts about God, about God's love, God's relationship with them. And, and it's to that nation in that headspace in that emotional space that Malachi speaks, beginning with the passage that we will explore this morning. A call to faith, a call to believe the love of God, that Yahweh indeed loves them. In fact, this message of God's love that we encounter today will prove to be the vital foundation of all that will follow in Malachi's message as we walk through uh, his book in the coming days. Now, I first studied the Minor Prophets about 30 uh, years ago in Bible college. And I remember, I remember one thing from that class. I want to share it with you. The Minor Prophets are, are the, the 12... Maybe I remember a couple things. Uh, the Minor Prophets are the 12 uh, prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament. They're called minor not because they're unimportant, not because their message is somehow insignificant, but because they are short in comparison to what are called the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Uh, they, they have a lot to say, but these 12 prophetic books form the end of the, the, the Old Testament. And in fact, Malachi, the book we're looking at, is the last of those 12 books. It is the last book of the Old Testament it is the last word from God before a period of 400 years of, of silence from God between the close of the Old Testament era and the appearing of John the Baptist and Jesus on the scene in the beginning of the Gospels. 400 years of silence. And so this is God's last word to his people before that intertestamental period is what we call it. Uh, the, the other thing, the one thing, fun thing that I remember from that class uh, I want to share with you, this is free, it's really unimportant, but I remember my professor saying, calling this book, he called it Malachi, Malachi the Italian prophet. That stuck with me all these years. Now, his name's not Malachi, it's Malachi, and he wasn't Italian. But anyways, that's one thing that you will remember after this series, I'm sure. So, like I said, memorable and brings a smile to my face, but completely irrelevant. Over the coming weeks, we will make our way through the message of Malachi, the, the message delivered to God's people living in the post-exilic period. I'll say more about that shortly. And this morning, we begin by exploring the opening uh, section, the opening part, the opening verses of Malachi, which introduce us to the central theme of the book, the love of God. And this will help us get a bearing on uh, what will come and, and also on the world into which Malachi delivered this message. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read Malachi 1, 1 to 5. It's when I ask you to open your Bibles, I should open mine too. Malachi 1, 1 to 5. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not, Jacob's, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and have turned his hill country into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. 
Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. I want to do or share with you this morning as we unpack these verses, I want to uh, share under four headings, four parts, if you will. First, uh, under the heading of Israel's skepticism. Secondly, Israel's situation. Third, Israel's story. And then fourth, we will consider the implications of this passage for our lives. So Israel's skepticism, Israel's situation, Israel's story, and the implications for our lives today. Real quickly, though, a preliminary, uh, preliminary matter. The book of Malachi opens with this superscription, verse 1, that reveals three important things to us. First, uh, a prophecy is how it's translated in the NIV. Some other translations will say an oracle, a message. Uh, This is a word uh, that we're receiving. Secondly, the word is given originally first to Israel, to God's people. But it's, it's a word from Yahweh, a word of the Lord to God's people, to Israel, um, through Malachi. Malachi is the messenger, but it is not his message. It is not on his authority. It is the authority of Yahweh. So this is a word, an oracle, a message from Yahweh to Israel from Malachi. That's just basic, but we need to understand that as we turn to the text. So let's look first at things under the, the heading of Israel's skepticism. The message proper from Yahweh to Israel through Malachi begins in verse 2. There we read these words, I have loved you, says the Lord. This rendering in English leaves open the possibility that we might misunderstand exactly what is being said here. It risks leaving the impression that, that this is no, no longer true. I, I have loved you, but don't love you anymore. We, we can hear that in English, and that is absolutely not what is being expressed here. The sense of the verb here is of a past action, but with ongoing, continuing reality. What it means is, I have loved you, and I love you still, is how one Old Testament scholar puts it. Another says, I have loved you, and I still do. We need to understand that here at the beginning, God announces this marvelous message to his people Israel. I love you. I I loved you in the past. I love you in the present. I still love you. I love you. But look at the response of God's people as we read on. Verse 2. But, you ask, how have you loved us? Just a quick aside. We're going to notice this throughout the book of Malachi. There are really six six large sections in Malachi. Each one follows this same pattern where there will be an assertion made, then there is a question or a rebuttal, and then a response. And so that's what we're encountering here in the first five verses. God has made this pronouncement, this assertion, I loved you. And God's people go, well, really? Do you really love us? And then God is going to respond. We will see that same pattern followed over and over throughout our text. So Malachi begins with this great declaration God's declaration that that God loves his people. I've loved you and I love you still. But the response of God's people might surprise us. It's not what we might typically expect. It's not a response of joy. It's not a response of celebration. It's not like, oh, that's awesome. That's not what we hear. Instead, their response is one of skepticism. 
It, it, it's of cynicism and doubt. You, you can almost hear the sneer, really? You love us. How do you love us? How have you loved us, Yahweh? Israel sounds like a belligerent teenager, brashly disputing God's assertion that he loves them. They're not sure they buy this. The confrontational nature of the dialogue is obvious. God's people are taking issue with what God is asserting. You see, things in their lives are not not going the way they want them to be going. Not not going in the way that they had expected them. Life is difficult. It's a bit of a grind. And they're living with incredible disappointment and disillusionment. In, In their minds, if they were really God's people, if God really loved them, then things would be different. Walter Kaiser Jr. writes this, The harshness of the times had so hardened them that they had veered towards a practical atheism. That is, they become so discouraged and so filled with doubt, so disillusioned, so disappointed with this idea that God loves them, that they are God's people, that they have drifted into really living as if they're not God's people. And as we read on in Malachi, we're going to see various ways, various aspects of their lives where they are living unfaithfully in that relationship. And God will call them to account, and He will call them to repentance, He'll call them to obedience. But here at the beginning, we see what that's rooted in. It's rooted in their doubt that God loves them. Like, really, you love us? And so they are essentially living, going through religious motions, as we will see, but really living as if God is not there, as if God doesn't really matter, as if they're not really His people. Perhaps you're here this morning. And you can identify with some of those same feelings. Perhaps you thought that putting your faith in Jesus would mean that life would would come together beautifully. Perhaps even you heard from well-meaning Christians who who told you things like that. Come to Jesus and and everything's going to be great. But see, the, the reality in the Christian life is there's this already not yet reality. Already we are redeemed. Already we have peace with God. But we still live in a world that is not yet reached its end where Christ's kingdom has come fully. And so perhaps you're experiencing that disappointment. Perhaps even in your disappointment, in your despair, you've come to that place of doubting God's love. God couldn't love me. If God loved me, things would be different. If God loved me, if I was really God's, things would be different. I, I want, I, I'm glad that we can be together together to wrestle with this. I want us to be able to be honest about what we feel and where we identify with with Israel in this time. Recognizing the hardness, the the disappointments of life, the disillusionment that we might experience and go, God, if I'm yours, if you love me, why? Why is life so hard? Why is it so disappointing? Let's turn our attention to our second topic, Israel's situation. I've just referenced the fact that Israel's life is difficult. It's disappointing at this point in their history. Uh, I also mentioned earlier that Malachi speaks this message to Israel in the post-exilic period. That's important for us to understand. I want to explain to you what exactly that means. What's going on in their life as a nation? I want to provide a bit of a historical sketch. Back in Genesis chapter 12, the first book of the Bible we read the account of God calling Abram and entering into a covenant relationship with him. 
He, he tells Abram that he's going to make him into a great nation and that through him, uh, through that nation, all nations on earth will be blessed. That's the beginning of the story, and, and you can read that in Genesis through the chapters. Abram doesn't have a child, and there's all kinds of things that happen, all kinds of drama, missteps by Abram. But God is faithful, and Abram ends up having a son, and his family grows, and they end up in Egypt, and they become a great nation. But in Egypt, they are enslaved in time. And they spend over 400 years cruelly oppressed as slaves in Egypt. And the people cry out to God. These descendants, this nation of Hebrews, they cry out to God in their misery. And God hears them. God delivers them. He raises up a leader in the person of Moses who comes and leads the people out of slavery into the wilderness and towards the promised land. Because of their sin, their Lack of faith in the wilderness, they end up spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness until finally, under the leadership of Joshua, they enter into the promised land. They take the land. And we enter into the period of Judges, a period that is not very bright. There are, there are moments of brightness, but Israel, the, God's people, this nation, the descendants of Abraham, continually spiral into sin and darkness. And God raises up a judge who delivers them from their enemies. And things are restored briefly, and then they, they spiral lower and lower and lower. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, things are dark. It's at that point in their story as a nation that God gives them a king, the first king, Saul, and though things begin well, he falters and he loses the throne. But after Saul, David is placed on the throne by God. David, a man said to be after God's own heart. And under David and his son Solomon, Israel rises to a place of great, uh, greatness and prominence. It is the golden age of Israel. Their, their boundaries are extended. They, they are this great powerful nation. Things are good. But Solomon, later on in life, is led astray by his many wives into idolatry, and when he dies, the nation is torn away from him, and it's torn into two. It is the divided kingdom, the divided monarchy, the, the ten northern tribes that are re referred to as Israel and the southern tribe of Judah, these two nations, split apart, because of sin. And we read through the Old Testament story that these nations both continue to falter into sin and into idolatry until finally in 722 B.C., about 300 years before Malachi comes on the scene, Israel in the north, the ten tribes, go into exile at the hands of the Assyrians because of their idolatry, because of their unfaithfulness, and they are never to return. They are referred to as the ten lost tribes. They disappear. They are, they are gone. Replaced in that area geographically by people from other nations. But Israel is wiped out. The, the southern nation of Judah does a little bit better. They hang around for about 150 years more. But they too fall into idolatry until finally 586 B.C. They go into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. They are besieged. Jerusalem is besieged. Eventually it falls. They are exiled. Jerusalem is razed to the ground. The temple is destroyed. The wall is torn down. It's a ruin. But God promised Judah that there would be a return. 
And sure enough, as we read the biblical story, 70 years later, Babylon has now fallen to Persia. And under Cyrus of Persia, Israel is, uh, Judah is given permission to move back to the land, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And so the return has happened as we come to the time of Malachi. We don't know the precise date, but, but they have returned to Palestine. Now here, we, we need to understand this. This return, though, looks a lot different than what was anticipated. Because not everyone came back. Many of those who had left in the exile, who had been taken away, stay where they, where they had put down roots. That's referred to as the diaspora, the dispersion. Not all of God's people return to Palestine. Only a small fraction do. And they come back and and though over time, and it takes time, we can read these stories in Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the temple is not rebuilt immediately. Eventually, the temple is rebuilt, but it pales in comparison to the glorious temple that Solomon had built. And there's still a few exiles who remember that, and they weep. It takes even longer before, under Nehemiah, the wall is rebuilt. But by the time Micah shows up, somewhere around that time, Certainly, we know that when sorry Malachi, not Micah, when Malachi shows up, we know that the temple is rebuilt because later on, Malachi is going to speak into what's going on at the temple. Whether the walls rebuilt or not, we don't know. But Jerusalem still largely is a ruin. The, the population is a fraction of what it was. There's no Davidic king. They're still under foreign domination, under the thumb of Persia. Yes, Persia's been good to them. Persia has returned them to the land, given them that, that freedom, but, but this is not the glorious life that they had anticipated. This is not a return of the golden years. The promises of the, of the prophets that there would be this great fruitfulness, great fruitful harvest, and, and the swelling of the population, and the Davidic king, all of these things are not fulfilled yet. And so 70 years after going into exile, this small portion of God's people of Judah have returned to the land, but it's not what they expected. They are disappointed. They are disillusioned. They, they are nurturing doubt in their hearts about this unique relationship of God with them, that they are God's people and they are largely living as if God is not a factor in the day-to-day -day of their disappointing lives. And it's into that situation that Malachi shows up with this word. I have loved you, and I love you still. Things were lamentable, not inspiring. Expectations had not been met. God's people were weary and they were mailing it in as far as this God thing goes. Going through the motions, but not living faithfully. Now, quick word, just to clarify something. In this text, I said Malachi, it is a word of the Lord, a message, an oracle of the Lord to Israel for, through Malachi. It's curious, isn't it, that this word is addressed to Israel when we know that Israel was already wiped out and there's only Judah and it's Judah that returned. And what I want to clarify for you, and this can be confusing as we read Scripture, but in the prophetic tradition, the term Israel is still understood as a term for God's united people. And at this point, all that's left is 
this remnant. And they are referred to with the title of Israel. So uh, the term Israel, though the northern tribes took it, at this point it is being used for God's people, uh, the people of Judah, the only people who were there. Uh, Douglas Stewart writes this, In Malachi's day, all that was left of political Israel was in fact Judah, but the remnant of God's people was truly Israel. That's how they're referred to. So that's what's going on here with the language of Israel. Let's turn to our third heading, the heading of Israel's story. Now, you might well think, haven't you just told us the story of Israel? I have. I've told you much of it. But, but uh, uh, to help locate us in, in the story of Malachi, or locate Malachi in that history and help us understand the, the context into which Malachi speaks, but what I want to focus our attention on at this point arises from uh, our text we're going to turn back to, um, specifically from, God, God, from God's response to Israel's question. And it focuses on this part of the story, on the founding of the nation. So God says, I have loved you. And Israel's response is this skeptical, how have you loved us? To which God responds this way, picking things up in verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. That language jars us, doesn't it? Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated on the lips of God. What, what are we to make of it? What are we to think? I don't want to eliminate all of the bite of this language. There are hard things that we encounter in Scripture, and we need to wrestle with those. But I do want to ensure that we properly understand what is being said here. We encounter this kind of language at various places throughout the Scriptures, including in the New Testament. I want to point you to one such example in uh, Luke chapter 14, where Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Unless a person hates, what is Jesus saying? See, we hear the word love and the word hate, and we think of this emotional response, these feelings of, uh, with hatred of disdain, of, of anger. That, that's where, where we go. But, but is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying that to be his disciple, we need to, we need to be angry at and despise and, and have this emotional <clears throat> towards our father and mother and wife or husband and kids? Like, is that what Jesus is saying? He's not. This is a Semitic way of speaking that makes the point of preferring one over another, if you will, of prioritizing, of aligning, of, of loyalty to one as opposed to the other. So when it comes to following Jesus as his disciple, our allegiance needs to be for Jesus above our allegiance to family, above our allegiance to father or mother or husband or wife or kids. Our allegiance, our loyalty needs to be to Jesus first. That's Jesus' point. That's what it means to love him and hate our family. We need to bear that in mind here. This language is used in a technical sense, not in a common way. Here's what Douglas Stewart writes. He says, The anonyms love and hate here are employed as they are characteristically in ancient Near Eastern language of diplomacy and international relations. Not to indicate petty emotion, but to depict alliance and enmity between or among nations. So God is saying, 
I love you. I am aligned with you, Israel. I have entered into this unique covenant relationship with you that I have not entered into with Esau. Okay, that's the point. God is pointing to this unique covenantal relationship with Jacob. Why? Because that relationship lies at the very heart of this story. Israel was chosen by God to be his special people. Jacob was chosen to be the one through whom the promised seed would come. And this is what we need to see. It's not because of anything Jacob did. It's not because of anything Jacob would do. It's not because of anything in Jacob at all. It is sheerly the grace and mercy of God who chooses the little things, who chooses differently than the world. In fact, Jacob was the younger of twin brothers. He and Esau were twins. Esau was the older. The the normal way in the ancient world would be that the older son would have the place of preeminence, that the older son would get the majority of the inheritance, that the, the older son would be in that special place. But God chooses Jacob just sheerly out of grace and mercy for this unique relationship. Elsewhere in Scripture, God says this about the nation of Israel itself. Uh, We see this in Deuteronomy. We read this. The Lord did not set his affection on you, that is Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because he loved you. That is, God didn't choose Israel because they were so great, because they were so godly. He chose them because they they were small, because they were insignificant, because it is God who will be glorified through his work of bringing salvation to the world. And so God chooses Jacob over Esau. We need to remember that Jacob and Esau are the fathers of two nations. Jacob is, of course, renamed Israel and is the father of this nation, one of the patriarchs. Esau becomes the father of the nation of Edom. By the time, in in time, we see, if we go back to Genesis, that Esau, the older, in a moment of rashness, sells his birthright to Jacob, the younger, twin brother, his younger twin brother, for a bowl of porridge, or a bowl of stew, sorry. Later, Jacob deceives their father into praying the prayer of blessing on him that was rightly Esau's, and then he had to run for his life. Though these brothers, Esau and Jacob, are eventually reconciled, the nation of Edom that came from Esau will prove to be a persistent enemy of Israel. In the book of Numbers, we read about Israel and their journey through the wilderness, and they come to the border of Edom, and they send this word to Edom, asking permission to travel through their land. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with a sword. This is their brother nation. And they proved to be an enemy opposing them, always against them. They would do worse years later. When Judah was under siege, the hands of the Babylonians, when they finally fell, Edom cheered for Babylon. Here's a prayer that we read in in the book of Psalms. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundation. This is their brother nation. Edom has been against Israel. Edom is an enemy of Israel, God's people. 
And so here, to reassure Israel of their unique place in redemptive history, to assure them, reassure them of his love for them that stands, that is faithful. God points Israel to the destruction that he has brought upon Edom as evidence of their unique standing. Because quite honestly, Israel has been unfaithful in all the same ways as Edom, but God's grace has preserved them. God sent them into exile to correct them from their sin. God is addressing them now in Malachi because of their unfaithfulness. God remains faithful to them. He continues to love them because of their unique role in redemptive history. And he points them to the destruction of Edom as evidence of that. But note this. Yes, they play this unique role in redemptive history. They are God's special people. But if we go back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 12, it was always never about just Israel. It was through Israel, it was through Abram's descendants that God would bless all the nations of the earth. We must not lose sight of that. God didn't save Israel for Israel's sake. God saved Israel. He called Israel. He chose Israel for the sake of the nations. That they might bear witness to Him before all people that they would be a blessing to all nations. And indeed, through them, eventually, Christ would come. Israel is called to faith in God, in God's love for them. Verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And when they look and they see how God has worked, when they recognize that Edom's fall, their plight, their destruction is, in fact, evidence of God's covenant love with them, Israel, that, that all of God's enemies will uh, face His judgment, that God's enemies will not prevail, but that God will preserve His people, no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how dark it is, that they can trust in God, they can trust in the love of Yahweh that remains true. He is faithful. And they will see that even beyond the borders of Israel. It's not limited to, to Israel. The, the nations around them in their belief that their gods were territorial. Israel's belief in Yahweh, Yahweh was not merely the God of Israel, but He was the, Israel, the God of all the world, and they will see His greatness. Let's turn fourthly to the implications of this text for us. As we will see as we continue to make our way through this book, God's love for His people is the essential foundation of all that will come of all that God calls His people to, of all that He called them to as He challenges them, as He corrects them, as He calls them to obedience, as He calls them to faithfulness. It's all rooted in this call to faith, this call to believe the love of God. A love that is not rooted in their performances, a, a love that is not rooted in what they've done, but is rooted in God's mercy and grace. And God beckons, uh, Malachi beckons them to respond to God's love with faithfulness. And God beckons us to the same. Today we do not live under the old covenant, but under a new covenant in Christ. A covenant established by Jesus Christ at the cross. The author of Hebrews calls it a better covenant. A better covenant that speaks of the great love of God. We read in John 3.16, a verse probably all of you could recite, 
For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. The, the word translated world there means humanity in rebellion against God. God the Father so loved humanity in rebellion against him that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will receive eternal life. Jesus is the author. He is the author of a, a new covenant, a better covenant. One that reveals the greatness of God's love for us. And we know that all who cry out in faith to Jesus, who put our faith in the love of God, will be saved. A covenant, this new covenant that is not about ethnic Israel. We read this, Paul's words in Galatians 3. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Through faith in Jesus, through faith in what Jesus did on the cross, we become part of the people of God. We become true Israel. We become God's covenant people, redeemed through His sacrifice. At the cross, Jesus bore the penalty that we deserved. See, we're not God's people. We're not loved because of our performance. We're not accepted because we get enough things right. We are accepted purely by His grace, by His mercy. When we look to the cross, we receive His washing. We are clothed with His righteousness. Our sin is done away. Jesus bears it. Jesus bears it in our place, and we bear His perfection. And we are part of His people, loved by God. Not loved because of what Christ did, but loved. It's God's love that, that lay behind Him sending Christ to the cross for us. It's the love of God. It's the reason that Christ willingly went to the cross. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that in life we will struggle. That in our lives, and no doubt right now, there are many of you who could point to disappointments. You could share stories of how you're feeling disillusioned. Even express doubts. Because it doesn't feel like God loves you right now. I want to say, I want to point you to the cross of Christ. I want you to point, point you to the one who cried out to God with a question as well. Because on the cross, as Jesus hung there, dying, bleeding for you and for me, he cried out to God, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, we feel abandoned. He was abandoned, willingly in our place, so that we might know the love of God the Father, that we might know the love of God through which we are redeemed. I cannot offer answers to each of the questions we might have about why we have to endure the things we endure, why life is so disappointing, why there's disillusionment. Think of Israel for a moment living in a nation that just was a mess. Probably we can identify at some level. We look around the world and there are so many brothers and sisters living in countries that are a complete mess and, and we might struggle with that. But this text, Malachi's word from the Lord, begins with this essential foundation. I love you. I have loved you. I still love you. And in Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we are redeemed. And so this is a call to faith. A call to believe the love of God, no matter what we see around us. No matter what our struggles are, no matter the disappointments, that we would be men and women of faith who would hear this cry from God. This declaration, I have loved you. Like the people of Israel before us, we are called to be men and women of faith. 
to believe the love of God for us in Christ, to trust in the love of God for, for us in Christ, a love that is faithful, a love that is persistent, a love that is tenacious, a love that is perseverant, a love that will not let go, the love of God. I want to close with these words by Walter Kaiser, Jr. He says, when times are hard, it is difficult to believe that God loves us. All appearances seem to count against such a belief. Yet that is exactly what this little book of Malachi is all about. Yahweh still loves Israel in spite of all appearances to the contrary. And this same unchanging Lord still loves us. Amen.